This is the Autism Explained podcast with Dr. Mark, bringing you the latest research on autism spectrum disorders. Follow us on Twitter at Autism Explained and visit our website at www.autismexplained.org. My guest today is Dr. Chuck Hensel. Dr. Hensel is a senior research manager at Lineagen Incorporated, a company in Salt Lake City, Utah, that's doing some very interesting things uh, in autism genetic diagnosis. Dr. Hensel has a PhD in genetics and cell biology from the University of Minnesota Twin Cities, and after that he did some postdoctoral work at the University of uh, Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio. Following that, he spent uh, over 12 years at another genetics company, Myriad Genetics, and is now the senior research manager and works in the autism program at Lineagen. Dr. Hensel, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. So, Dr. Hensel, uh, you have a very unique background, um, especially with regard to some of the other people we've had on the show this far, in that you, like, I guess, all researchers sort of started in academia, but then transitioned into sort of uh, more applied uh, commercial approaches with some of your work. Can you talk talk a little bit about your background and how you got involved with uh, what you're doing now? Absolutely. So as you can tell from uh, the fact that I got my Ph.D. from the Department of Genetics and Cell Biology in Minnesota, I've kind of always had an interest in genetics, and so that that uh, influenced my choice to go into the program in which I eventually got my Ph.D., uh, when I moved to San Antonio for my postdoctoral work, I was working on um, tumor suppressor genes in lung cancer, and so I had got a lot of experience or a lot of exposure to doing genomics at a very early stage. And then when I came to Salt Lake City and started working at Myriad, um, I was working on projects to look at genes involved in several different kinds of conditions including obesity at one point, uh, asthma, and also, more importantly from my perspective, uh, trying to identify genes for major depression. So looking at that project sort of is what got me into the neurobiology end of things. And when I started working here at Lineagen, there was a big need for trying to identify the genes involved in autism development. And as you may or may not know, genetic studies in Utah are relatively easy to do because families are large, and that means one has a lot more ability to trace genes as they as they are inherited throughout a very large family, and that gives you a lot more power to be able to identify things. So that's sort of how I, that's where I am now. Oh, great, great. Well, that well that sort of leads into uh, you know we want we want to hear a little bit more about Lineagen specifically some of your programs and so you're kind of both doing some research things and some uh, commercialization things. But uh, from what I understand, the sort of whole genesis of Lineagen has to do with what you were talking about the population of genetics in Utah. Maybe you can kind of explain uh, a little bit about Lineagen and how it got started with regards to that, and then uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the projects you're working on. Absolutely. The Lineagen was actually started as a as a research only entity about I think about 12 years ago, and uh, it was recognized that uh, by a number of people, including then Governor Mike Levitt of the state of Utah, that the genetic resources available in the state are really really incredibly good for identifying inherited disease risk genes. 
Some examples of genes that have been previously identified in Utah are the uh, breast cancer genes, uh, familial melanoma genes, some inherited colon cancer genes, some epilepsy genes, and just a whole host of different genetic conditions uh, that have their um, identification rooted in the in the large families that are available here in Utah. So uh, there are a lot of other conditions, um, autism being one, where there is a very clear genetic component, meaning um, it's known that at least a lot of the risk for um, autism is inherited, but not many genes have been identified. So one of the projects that Lineagen started working on early on was to try and identify some of those genes. And there are other projects going on here as well, not just autism, but we also have an MS project trying to do similar things. Right, MS being multiple sclerosis. So uh, we want to hear all about your, your autism projects, but give, give, what do you mean when you say that you know, there's ge unique genetic resources in Utah? Give us a better uh, uh, example of what it is you mean by that. So one of the best ways to identify where on a particular chromosome, and for those of you who don't know as much about chromosomes, chromosomes are the structures inside of cells that contain our DNA. And so when you inherit something, whether it's your hair color or eye color or even a disease gene, you inherit that on a particular chromosome. And the way you try to find where on a particular chromosome the gene you're looking for lies is by looking at how it traces or how you can trace its inheritance through a family. And so the larger the family is or the more uh, children there are within a family, the more likely you are to be able to find something, the more power you have to identify the location of such a gene. And so in Utah, the families tend to be larger. Uh, there's good genealogical data available back for many generations, which allows you to go back and look and say, oh, here's somebody four or five or even six generations ago who had this trait, this disease that you're, for which you're trying to identify the gene. And you can trace that down to subsequent generations. And what that allows you to do is to, to identify a relatively small portion of a chromosome where that gene has to lie. Um, and by doing that, it simplifies the the uh, the task of trying to identify what the gene is that's causing that particular trait or disease. I see. So, so basically, what you're saying, so like for example, say you were interested in finding the, say there was one gene for green eye color or something. Uh, it's easier to find that if you have a family that consists of a hundred people and half of them have green eye color than if you have a family of ten people and half have green eye color because you have more sort of opportunity to identify the real gene versus uh, confounding factors, right? That's exactly right. And so basically then what you guys are doing is is not applying it to just eye color, but applying it to specific disorders that you may be able to uh, identify genes, genes for that you could then turn into some sort of diagnostic test. Am I right? That's correct. Interesting. So uh, where where... Where else or why – so why Utah specifically uh, in terms of, like, what is it about Utah that the pop, the families are bigger and the genealogy is better documented? And, and where else in the world is that type of thing going on? Because I know there's a couple other places that are kind of famous too. 
There are places like that. I mean, for example, there's a lot of genetic research done in Iceland. It's sort of for different reasons, not necessarily because of large families, but uh, the population of Iceland mostly derives from a small number of families uh, that emigrated there, um, you know, from Scandinavia, from Norway primarily, I believe. And so if you go back enough generations, those individuals are relatively closely related, and that makes them a uniform population, and that's a good thing to study. Or that makes genetics more simple because you don't have other confounding things uh, that complicate uh, the search you're doing. Um, but in particular here in Utah, there are a couple of advantages, one of which is um, the Utah population database. The Mormon religion, which is the predominant one here in Utah, firmly believes in collecting and, and keeping information about relationships, about families, uh, just general information that uh, serves their purposes. But when one comes, when it comes to doing uh, genetic research, that same information can be used uh, to the researchers' advantage as well. And one example would be uh, by um, using genealogical data uh, to connect or to find relationships between individuals who may not know they're even related, but actually who um, share what turns out to be the same mutation in a, in a gene that causes autism, for example, in the case of the studies we're doing right now. So you may have two seemingly unrelated children uh, with autism, but you trace their family histories back and you can find out perhaps that they're related somewhere six or seven or even eight generations before. And what that information suggests is that they may be suffering from autism because of a mutation in exactly the same gene, even though they didn't know they were related. I see. So basically because the... So it's not just that the families are bigger, but it's that you have more information about who is basically through history genetically related to who that you're able to to, to if you find uh, someone with a specific trait, you're able to have a better um, basically you can infer better whether or not that's an inherited trait or or not related to genetics. That's correct. What what may seemingly look like. A what we would call a sporadic case, a case that's not necessarily inherited, uh, may turn out to be definitely an, an inherited case. And one can do that, one can identify those simply by looking at the genealogy and finding these uh, connections, these relationships that were even unknown to the families themselves. I see. So, so let's talk about some of those uh, studies that you've done in, in those regards, because recently you guys have come out with some pretty um, famous famous work, and we'll put links to them on our website, and a couple of them are actually freely available, so listeners can and can go read them if they'd like. Tell us a little bit about some of these uh, bigger genetic studies you guys have recently um, been doing with regards to autism. So, similar to what I was just describing, we started with families uh, here in Utah that have individuals a higher than, than expected uh, frequency of children with autism. So, for example, in a, in a single four or five generation family, there may be 10 people affected with autism where if you look at the general population, you might expect to see only two or three. So that's a much higher frequency than you'd expect. And because of that, 
that makes you suspect that there's a gene involved that's causing that, uh, the autism in that family. So we started with about 35 such families and looked, kind of as I alluded to previously, for pieces of chromosomes that all the people that are affected with autism in those families share and people who don't have autism don't share. And so a region like that is where you might expect to find a gene that predisposes to autism. So that's kind of the starting point. And so what we did was to look for several kinds of different things that have been uh, genetic uh, mutations, if you will, uh, abnormalities that can result in um, autism or other uh, improper development conditions. And so what we looked for were uh, chromosomal changes, and these include uh, portions of the chromosome that are actually lost in individuals with autism or other portions that maybe are duplicated. So you have extra copies of them. So the first paper um, that came out in 2013 looked at deletions and duplications, these losses or gains uh, of chromosomal regions that were identified in uh, individuals with autism in Utah families but then we wanted to see if any of those changes were also observed in a population of children with autism who are unrelated. So we collaborated with the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia with Dr. Halkin Halkin Arson's lab there, who collected um, a very large population of about 3,000 kids with autism and also 6,000 controls. And so what I mean by that are individuals who don't have autism or children who don't have autism and appear to have normal development. And so what we wanted to see was if any of these genetic changes that we identified in Utah families were also applicable to um, children with autism in the general population. And in fact, we found that. We found a number of these deletions or duplications that we observed in Utah families were also relevant in the general population. So, so let me sort of uh, recap so that we're, I'm understanding. So you're saying you, you, you basically started with this very unique small set of families that had a much higher rate of autism in their families than, than sort of what is known to be the average rate. And you started with them, and you were able to identify um, some variation, these copy number variations, right? Correct. And then from there, you wanted to then say, okay, this was a small, smaller sample size. We want to then expand that to cases where the, the children aren't necessarily coming from families with increased numbers of kids with autism. They're coming from just basically any family with a child with autism. And you then you wanted to compare those same variants in those kids as compared to controls. And by controls, you're meaning un kid, unrelated kids whose families didn't have autism? That's correct. And so overall what you're saying then is that you're finding the variants you were able to pick up by only studying those 35 families were also enriched in the, the 3,000 families of kids with sort of just general autism. That's right. Wow. And so so this is – so then apart from just sort of identifying uh, particular regions of interest, which which we can talk about – it also kind of shows the unique power of the what you have going on there in Utah to sort of 
be able to look at a, a much smaller sample of people but identify something that's broadly relevant, right? That's right. That's absolutely true. But it also shows the relevance of those findings to the general population. You know, one one comment that sometimes is made is that, well, you're finding things in, a, in this very small population, but it doesn't really apply to everybody else. And what our results show is that that's not the case. In fact, the results you find in these family studies of the type that we do here, uh, in fact, do apply to, to everybody. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. So, that, so, um, so, talk about that a little bit. So, there is kind of a debate in the field about what people call rare variants versus common variants, right? So, give give us sort of a, a, a general overview of what people mean when they're talking about that, and then what it is that your uh, results are showing with regard to that debate. Sure. So, you're right. There's a lot of debate debate in the literature in the scientific community between scientists who say that uh, autism is such a common disease, it must be caused by common genetic changes uh, versus those uh, among which I would count myself who say, yes, autism is a common disease, but it's not that, that um, the variants, the, the mutations, if you will, that cause autism are common, it's just that there are a very large number of rare variants. So, in fact, there was a paper that came out uh, in a very good journal called Nature Genetics last week that took the former argument, saying that a lot of the genetic influence for autism comes from these common variants. And these are locations in the genome, in the human DNA content, where there is variability. And the variability at those places is very common. So if you look at yours and mine, you and I would likely differ at, at, at many of those locations. And it's not that um, a single one of those has any significant effect on causing autism, but if you look at thousands and thousands, and thousands of them combined, each one of them maybe has just a very tiny incremental effect um, and if you have enough of them, the net result is autism. Uh, so that's kind of what this paper that came out last week is saying. Uh, on the other hand, the results of our studies suggest the opposite. The, the results of our studies suggest that it's in, there are a number of really, really very rare variants, um, stronger mutations, if you will, um, that for, at least in these families and in the, the larger population that we studied as well, uh, that may predispose these children to autism, and that the the more common variants are are less relevant in these cases. Interesting. And so, and, and uh, it's a naive question, but when we're saying common and rare, par partly actually what we're just talking about is how, what is the frequency of that sort of uh, gene just in the population, right? So that's right. That's right. A common variant, some or something. Sure, a common variant typically. A typical definition for a common variant is one that is found in greater than 5% of the population. Um, so anything that's that common, um, one would say can't really be a disease-causing variant because it's that common. Too many people have it. If it were disease-causing, then you know, a very large portion of the population would have that disease. On the other hand, rare variants are typically called those uh, that are seen at 
less than 1% of in less than 1% of the population or in some cases even less than 0.1%. And in fact, um, many of the variants that we identified, in particular those that are described in the paper that came out earlier this year, uh, have frequencies of 1 in 300 or one less than 1 in 1,000. And in fact, uh, three of them haven't been seen anywhere before except in uh, in our Utah families of children with autism and in one patient each in our study with the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So there we saw it in one out of about 1,500 kids with autism and in zero out of about 6,000 kids that didn't have autism. So those are really, really rare findings. I see. So then both in sort of uh, whether whether you're studying rare or common things, uh, once you sort of kind of say that you think you can identify some region of the genome that appears to be enriched in, in autism, uh, what, what's the next step then? So the next step is uh, you, you then want to kind of find out what genes are in that region, right? That's right. So, so walk us through a little bit, first of all, what's the difference between the study that you were looking at, which is copy number variation? How is that different than a sequencing study? And then, and then tell us about in your studies, once you've sort of found regions of the genome that seemed interesting, what were the next steps from there? Sure. So copy number changes typically, as I mentioned earlier, are losses or gains of chromosomal regions. And it's been known probably for about seven or eight years that those kinds of changes occurred frequently in kids with autism. So our goal initially was to look for those kinds of changes in our Utah autism families and, as I mentioned, then translate those into uh, the general autism population and see if they're wrong. So these are things that you could see under the microscope or these are, these are smaller? No, these are much smaller changes. In fact, a typical change that you can see under the microscope, DNA size is measured in base pairs. And under the microscope, you can see a deletion or a duplication. Maybe that's 5 million or 10 million base pairs in size. That's the smallest size you can see. You can see bigger things more readily, but smaller things than that are very, very difficult. Uh, the kinds of changes that we're talking about here, these copy number variants, are bigger than about 1,000 base pairs, but smaller than, say, 20 or 30 million base pairs. And in fact, Many of the ones that we described in our paper last year um, are on the order of a few thousand base pairs. So that those are things that could not even remotely be seen under a microscope. Okay, I see. So you're talking about uh, so in that in that sort of range, how many on average genes would you find in that that size of a, the genome? Some of them may only have a portion of a single gene. Uh, some of them may, in fact, only contain a portion of uh, the genome that regulates how a gene works or how active the gene is. So some of them may not even, in fact, contain a known part of a gene at all. And then others may contain five genes, 10 genes, you know, 15 to 20 genes, something along that line. Uh, so they're relatively small. They don't have a whole lot of genes, but they do uh, have information 
whether it's an intact gene or a portion of a gene that's necessary for proper brain development. I see. And then contrast contrast that with what is in the news not a lot now, like sequ- a sequencing study or whole genome sequencing. Absolutely. So, in fact, uh, the paper that we published in January of this year dealt with DNA sequence data primarily. We also looked at some copy number variants there, but but the goal was to identify DNA sequence level variants in individuals with autism. And I told you, I mentioned about copy number variants a few minutes ago, that those tend to be very large, uh, a few hundred, a few thousand, or even a few million base pairs of DNA. DNA sequencing allows you to detect variants or abnormalities at the one base pair level. So you're looking at things that can make perhaps affect only a single base pair, but still could be mutations that could result in autism. Right. So in this case, you're saying you could find one small little change within one gene at, at, using sequencing. Using the copy number variation, you'd be able to find a, a big change that affects possibly multiple genes or a region between genes, but they're on different scales, basically, of the, the DNA. That's exactly right. And because of the technology, then, I'm assuming that there's sort of advantages to looking at one versus the other? Absolutely. And and one thing to note is that if you're looking, for example, clinically, uh, using these as a diagnostic tool, um, the copy number changes simply because they're easier to detect uh, right now are um, more informative. Uh, because they contain multiple genes, often... Um, they can they can provide you with more information. They can provide much better explanations for what's going on. And um, they've been under observation for a longer period of time, so we know more about them, about the kinds of effects they result in when you have a deletion or a duplication of that sort. Many of the, the variants that are found by DNA sequencing in the clinic are what we term of unknown significance. So they don't look like what would be termed the normal DNA sequence, but we don't know if that means they're bad or just uh, common changes. So they're things that we can't really define, for which we can't really define the function yet. So we basically, it's it's more sensitive than the knowledge we have about that region of the genome and its relevance to autism or any other disease. That's right. All right, I see. So, so then now walk us through. I imagine once once in your studies of copy number variation or even in sequencing, you kind of arrive at some hot spots, right? In the genome, I imagine you're not yet done. Like you want to probably find out more information about those regions and how the genes in those regions could could affect um, the developing brain. So, so what are the next steps once you find sort of some hot spot regions? So there are lots of things that can be done or that one wants to do. One of which is to look at, um, uh, for example, um, experimental models to see what effects perturbing individual genes within those regions have um, on those experimental model systems. Uh, for example, if if you're growing nerve cells in in culture, you're growing them in a test tube essentially or in a petri dish. Um, 
looking to see how getting rid of a particular gene affects how those cells grow or how they interact with each other. That's one thing that can be done. Um, another thing is to, if there is some activity that um, that gene is known to have, measuring what happens to that activity when the gene is perturbed. And so that can often point you in the direction of uh, what may be really going on when that gene is perturbed in a child with autism. You're listening to the Autism Explained podcast with Dr. Mark. Visit us at www.autismexplained.org. Basically, uh, when you do these sort of uh, either sequencing or CNV studies, the sort of results are really just the starting point for a whole other set of experiments then. That's right. I mean, and that's the way science always works. You you start with an idea, you get some findings, and those findings universally point you to, to another experiment or set of experiments that need to be done. So give us an idea of uh, kind of this field in general. So obviously Lineage is, uh, is doing a lot of good stuff, and there's a lot of other places, both academic and private, that are doing similar types of studies, basically trying to identify hotspots in kids with autism. Where are we at? How many hotspots have been sort of identified? How do we know that they're, those, are, those are unique to autism? Um, uh, what, what's sort of the state of the field right now, in your opinion? You know, you, you've actually hit upon a really interesting topic right there. First of all, there are literally now thought to be hundreds of different genes involved in autism. But it's becoming more and more apparent as we go along that these genes maybe are not just involved with autism, but also other conditions as well. Uh, bipolar disorder, for example, schizophrenia, some genes observed with variants observed in autism have also been observed in schizophrenia. Um, ADHD has a lot of overlap. So attention deficit hyperactivity disorder has a lot of overlap. Uh, genetic overlap with findings in autism. So these conditions as a whole are called neuropsychiatric conditions. So they're, they affect um, psychiatric, they have psychiatric effects, whether it's on behavior, um, um, cognition, the ability to think about things, intellectual disability, uh, those sorts of things. And there's a lot of overlap in the, the the genes that appear to be involved in all of these conditions. I see. So basically, you're saying that people are studying ADHD kids similar to how you studied kids who have autism, and in some of the studies, they're turning up the same genes, even though they're not even studying children with autism. That's exactly right. And sometimes their kids with ADHD also have autistic features, and sometimes our kids with autism also have ADHD-like features. So there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of comorbidity, which means uh, kids have more than one symptom, perhaps. Sure. So then tell us about, uh, in particular, so what you're doing research-wise is fascinating, but you're kind of doing it in a unique way because you're doing it in the context of lineagen, which obviously is then trying to commercialize these results eventually. So, so tell us, sort of, give us some insight into that uh, component of what you're doing. Sure. So, so the goal of Lineagen is obviously to, to take some of these research findings and translate them into the clinic, to make them, uh, to generate results that can be used in the clinic uh, to perhaps 
um, diagnose kids with autism at an earlier age, uh, to be able to uh, distinguish um, subcategories of kids with autism, because it may be when you can look at those kids carefully enough that you need to treat them differently. I mean, it's clear that um, if you can get kids into behavioral therapy, intensive behavioral therapy early on, as opposed to when they're older children, those, that therapy is going to be much more effective. So if we can get an earlier diagnosis, it's better for that child. Um, if we in the future can, can subclassify into a different type of autism, it may be possible to use a different type of therapy, and that could be better for that child. That's sort of the overall goal of what we're doing is to be able to, um, first of all, to identify these children, to get them diagnosed earlier, but secondly, uh, to be able to get them the best care that they can have so that they have they achieve their optimal outcomes. So I see. So so a lot basically kind of what you're getting at is a early identification, almost like a maybe even a screening approach um, to kids who you were worried about that maybe didn't have typical development. I, I don't think I would call it a screening approach because we wouldn't uh, encourage this form of testing to somebody for somebody who doesn't already have symptoms. But what I would say is if there are symptoms, and I kind of mentioned this earlier, there are a whole host of different developmental conditions, and many of these have overlapping symptoms. And sometimes the most important thing is being able to get them into the right therapy. And by identifying the actual genetic cause in a particular individual, that can help you get into the right therapy. So it's not so much using genetics as a screening tool, um, but rather using it as a, as a clinical tool to help identify the genetic cause of a condition in a single particular individual and using that information then to help get them into the right therapy. I see. So give us a, um, some sense of, of what is currently considered um, standard of care with regard to using genetic testing in, in someone with suspected autism. So it's July 2014, we're recording this, and say um, a child came to a pediatrician, and the pediatrician was worried the child you know, doesn't currently have a diagnosis of autism, but is worried about it. What is it that that pediatrician is supposed to be doing with regards to genetics? So the first thing, which is a non-genetic test, is, in fact, pediatricians have access to screening tools um, that can give them a better indication if something is not, not right, if development is not occurring the way it should. One, for example, uh, is called the Modified Checklist for Autism and Toddlers, or NCHAT, and that's available online to use as a screening tool. So the first thing that the pediatrician should do is administer a tool, whether it's MCHAT or one of a number of other ones, to see if there is something wrong potentially. Um, and if that turns out to be the case, then it's the time where you could start to consider doing genetic testing to try and identify exactly what might be wrong. So uh, in that case, a pediatrician, let's say, administers a screening tool, finds that there is a, uh, a suspected um, developmental condition, whether it's autism or something else. Um, it's at that point that the American College of Medical Genetics 
is the medical governing body for genetic testing, actually recommends any child with autism, developmental delay, or intellectual disability is actually a candidate uh, for this kind of testing, for genetic testing, to try and identify the genetic cause of their clinical features. I see. So how, so how practically speaking, for, for, you know, most of our listeners aren't physicians or practicing any sort of medicine, how would that work? So if I'm a pediatrician, say, and I'm suspecting, I, I ran a checklist and I'm worried that a child might have a, a neurodevelopmental problem, uh, what do I do? I take a kid's blood, and then where do I send it? I, or how do I how do I know whether to send it to your company or some other company? Or, or walk us through kind of the the back end of of what's going on in, in healthcare with regard to genetic testing. Sure. So I mean, there are, there are a number of other companies besides Lineagen who are out there who do this type of testing. Uh, we have, you know. We think we have advantages because of our some in some respects because of our uh, research into genetic causes of autism, um, because of our um, work uh, keeping up on everything that comes out in the literature from other from academic labs from other companies etc. Um, uh, just staying on top of everything that's out there about potential genetic causes, um, we think we have a leg up on 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 some of these other. Uh, other companies. Um, the other thing is we tend to spend a lot more time um, when we report our results, uh, the results of a genetic test through lineage and, uh, to, to a family and to a physician, we spend a lot more time. I mean, I'm sure you've seen in the past lab re- reports that maybe are one or two pages and have just a few short sentences about the findings. Well, we take that to a new level. We provide reports that are 50 or more pages, and they contain a lot of detail that's customized to each individual patient that's being tested. So it provides both the family and the physicians with a lot of information that they wouldn't get from somebody else. I see. So, another so thing you, what you, oh, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say there's another advantage is you mentioned uh, drawing a blood sample, but in fact, um, we don't use blood samples, or we don't use blood as a source of DNA for um, for our genetic tests, and there are a couple of reasons for that. One of which is for kids with autism or other forms of developmental delay, it can be very difficult to get a blood sample. In fact, sometimes you even have to sedate the patient, uh, the child, to be able to draw a blood sample. We actually use what's called a buckle swab, which is actually a brush that you stick inside the mouth, rub it up against the cheek about 10 times on each side, and that's enough. That gives us enough DNA to do our test. And it's a much simpler, non-invasive way to get a DNA sample that can be used to to do this kind of genetic testing. Interesting. So uh, practically speaking then, I mean, just because a lot of people don't necessarily think of this, but it, it, are you just saying basically it comes down to the physician's discretion of who they're going to send the test off to and, and different companies will take different types of samples and provide different types of reports? That's absolutely correct. So there's not one sort of uh, – it doesn't go to like a you know the AC, the medical college you talked about. It doesn't go to one governing body. It goes to the um, basically company that the physician has decided they would like to have that service provided by. Right, and the American College of Medical Genetics, the ACMG, does provide guidelines and says 
your test has to meet these minimum criteria. It's got to be a quality lab. It's got to be a reproducible result. So if you test on two different labs, you should be able to get the same result. Um, but there can be differences in sensitivity depending on the exact testing platform that's used in the different by the different uh, companies. Um, and also, reporting standards very often finding out all the detailed information is left up to the physician. And physicians often are really, really busy and don't have as much time as they would like to look up all the detail. So we try to provide more of that information for them uh, to simplify their job, but also to help explain as much as possible to the families of these kids who are being tested. I see. So not just anyone can open up a genetic testing shop, basically. You need to be accredited by one of these governing bodies. But then of those, there's there's multiple. That's correct. That's correct. Interesting. So tell us tell us specifically then, because uh, you sort of got into some of the uh, um, unique things you provide to a physician or to the, the patients in terms of report, but tell us some specifically about some of the tests you guys are offering and uh, what do you have in development and, and where you guys see this kind of field going? Sure. So right now, um, we talked about copy number changes, the copy number variants earlier. And the only test that we offer right now is to detect copy number changes in children with autism and other forms of developmental delay. Um, that's kind of our bread and butter from a clinical perspective right now. But we are, in fact, working on a DNA sequencing-based product as well, and we hope to launch that product within the next few months. The idea being um, with this looking for copy number changes, we actually find something that is causal, is the known causal variant or at least a potential causal variant in roughly 30% of the kids we test. And what we hope to do with DNA sequencing is to close to double that. So we hope to be able to find, between the two tests, maybe find a genetic explanation for as many as 50% uh, or so of the kids that were tested. I see. Interesting. Uh, can you give us some sort of idea of what the cost of a type of this test would be? So basically what it amounts to from our perspective is um, – the, the cost, the actual list price is relatively high, but it doesn't result in any out-of-pocket expenses for the, the actual patient's family. So what we do is we do all the billing for the families. Uh, we bill the insurance companies. We uh, appeal when insurance companies uh, deny a claim, as they often do, um, and make sure we get paid, but we don't push any of that off on the families themselves. We, we make sure that, that, um, that the impact on the families themselves is very minimal. I see. Interesting. So um, tell us a little bit more about, uh, you, you said you mentioned you're, gonna, well, you're working on a new test, and so are, are, what is the thoughts of that? You'll, you're thinking you'll be able to pick up more specifically, what's what is the variant, or you think you'll be able to identify more children using using this more sensitive technique? Well, a little bit of both, actually. So, as I mentioned, roughly thirty percent of the time, looking for copy number changes, we can identify what may be a causal variant in in a child with one of these conditions, whether it's autism or other other forms of developmental delay. 
Um, with DNA sequencing, um, a large number of uh, sequence variants have been published or are otherwise available um, in the literature uh, or on other public websites that are classified either as um, causal variants, so mutations that are known to cause the disease, or as uh, variants of unknown significance, which I mentioned for copy number variants earlier. The same is true for DNA sequence variants, or finally, as common or silent variants, variants that don't have an effect on the function of a particular gene. Um, so our goal is to be able to look at these variants that we identify um, in kids whose DNA is being sequenced um, and rule in certain conditions by saying, okay, you have this variant now. We know this variant causes autism or we know this variant causes a form of epilepsy or this variant causes um, a particular form of developmental delay and in intellectual disability. Um, so we know, we know about these. Um, here are some other ones that we think are also likely to contribute in, in those conditions, but then there are a whole bunch of others that we don't think do contribute or that may or may not contribute. And so our plan is to report those in particular that we're very confident of, that we can say, yes, this is going to make a difference because we now know something about what caused your condition. I see. Great. Well, that, that's that's really neat work you guys are doing. So, so um, humor us and and speculate for a minute on in ten years from now. So, so as you you were saying that there's just both the work you guys are doing and other labs. There's tons of ongoing research trying to identify all these variants. Where are we going to be in ten years? Will we have every variant that is associated with autism identified? And if so, what does that mean for for genetic testing for autism or all sort of all, all neurodevelopmental disorders. Okay, so what I would say is we won't have all the variants identified in 10 years, and the reason for that is there are too many, potentially too many variants that could cause autism. Um, if you look at a single gene that's maybe 2,000 base pairs in length, I talked about DNA uh, being made of base pairs. If you look at something that's 2,000 base pairs in length, well, maybe two-thirds of those 2,000 base pairs could be mutated and could result in autism, and that's just in one gene. So even if everybody with autism has their DNA sequence within 10 years, and that's unlikely in and of itself, um, there's still going to be variants that have not yet been identified that could be causal for autism. Um, so there's, going to, there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of identifying the genes involved. And then the whole issue that we talked about before, the role of common variation versus rare variation, that's not even close to being deciphered yet. Do the two types of variants contribute to different forms of autism? Do they contribute to the same forms of autism? Or are the common variants simply uh, working as markers that indicate the presence of a rare variant in the same region? Yeah. We don't know the answers to those questions yet. What about as as more so you think that we're still be identifying variants ten years from now. What what sort of implications does that have for Linogen's tests or other companies' tests? Do those tests get better as we identify more variants or do they actually get worse because then there's uh it's harder to basically know whether something is significant. 
No, they get better. Absolutely, they get better. Because the more information you have, uh, the more likely you are to be able to make the correct clinical decision, uh, the correct diagnosis. And what one can begin to do as one collects that genetic information is to begin to associate particular genetic changes with particular symptoms. And once you start to do that, um, that's when you really get to the point where you can make it have a positive impact on a child's life because you're saying, okay, we know this variant causes this behavioral difficulty in this child, and this behavioral difficulty is best treated in this way. So you can get very specific both in terms of the diagnosis and in terms of the treatment. That's the ultimate goal here. And perhaps even eventually one can develop um, pharmaceutical interventions for children that have specific gene mutations and say, okay, you have this change. Um, this results in a condition that is best treated with um, um, a drug that affects a particular cell surface receptor or a particular brain signaling molecule, uh, something that uh, turns on or turns off a particular nerve cell or type of nerve cell in the brain. And if you can impact that at a very early age, then maybe that child won't even have any symptoms anymore. That's the ultimate goal. I see. So, so sort of the, the what we hear about personalized medicine, where every every individual is personally sort of treated or managed based on their specific genetic change. Exactly right. I mean, there's a lot of that going on now, in particular for cancer, and we're a long way from being able to do that for something like autism, uh, but ultimately that would be the goal. I see. Well, fascinating stuff. We're getting short on time, so Dr. Hansel, I want to say thank you so much for being with us today. It's fascinating both what you're doing and what uh, your company, Lineagen, is doing. Dr. Hansel is the Senior Research Manager at Lineagen Incorporated, a company in Salt Lake City, Utah. Dr. Hansel, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening to the Autism Explained podcast with Dr. Mark. This has been a production of Autism Explained Incorporated. All views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals and do not represent Autism Explained Incorporated or its employees. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. Always consult with your physician. Follow us on Twitter at Autism Explained and visit our website for more shows and other material at www.autismexplained.org.